Well, thank you very much for the uh, for the warm welcome. Thank you, Petrula, for the for the kind words. Uh, strategy is is the subject of of this book, which I wrote with uh, A.G. Laffley, who was the CEO of Procter and Gamble. Uh, during the uh, 2000 to 2009 period, and you probably know him as being quite famous for having brought uh, design and innovation thinking uh, to uh, Procter and Gamble, or at least deepening their uh, their appreciation of of uh, design. Um, but this is about strategy, and the term strategy is often for for uh, folks in the world of design, but in the world of business generally, a sort of a confusing uh, topic and notion. You know, kind of what on earth is strategy? Everybody says you have to have one, and lots of uh, companies spend lots of time creating long strategic plans that say, here's, you know, here is our strategy, um, but often don't find it to be very uh, useful or, or helpful. And so what we've tried to do is, is write a book that simplifies it. The goal of this book is to make strategy simple, fun, and effective. There's no good reason why strategy can't be lots of, lots of uh, uh, fun and simpler than people think uh, it can be. So what, what is strategy to begin with? Strategy is about choosing to do some things and not other things. So any company, any organization that tries to do a little bit of everything, as we all know, is not going to get very uh, uh, far. Uh, what you have to do is pick pick doing some things and not other things and pick in a way that will enable you to win. So that's the, the essence of strategy. Then that, of course, begs the fundamental question, okay, what choices do you have to make? What things do you have to choose from among? And the good news, I will tell you tonight, is that there are only five choices that any company, any organization, any nonprofit, any piece of a company, any division, any product, needs to do to have a strategy that wins uh, for them, a strategy that adds more value than their competitors. Okay? These are the five, and I'll, and I'll illustrate each, each of them uh, with, an, with an example, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then I'm happy to take any or all questions that, that you might have about this, and any questions about how this might link to what you do in, in the world of, uh, of design. So, number one, question that you've ha got to ask, choice that you have to make, is what is your winning aspiration? Now, why do we use the word here, winning? Why, why does it matter that you have an aspiration for winning? The reason it I is, is that when you don't try to win, when you don't try to create more value than anybody else that you are playing in the on the same playing field against, somebody else is inevitably going to do that, and somebody else is going to win. Uh, and what you what you're trying to accomplish won't be sustainable if somebody else is is winning. And this is something that you might think is sort of natural that people would say, yes, we're in business to win, we're in business to be the best. But often it's not the case. Often the the aspiration of an organization is to be better than it currently is. Now that's not a terrible thing. Improving yourself is is helpful, but improving yourself without a very clear goal is not very helpful. So I'll give you an example. Uh, back in uh, uh, 2006, I was working with the senior management team of uh, of General Motors, Rick Wagner and his senior team, on attempting to turn around uh, General Motors. And the next biggest 
launch that they were doing in uh, in their business was the launch of the Malibu, the 2008 Malibu uh, that was launched uh, uh, launched launching in the uh, fall of 2007. And this was the fall of 2006. And I asked the senior management team, what is the aspiration for this new Malibu? Because they were spending, they spent about $2 billion on the, uh, on the redo of uh, and replatforming of the, of the Malibu. And it was going to be a big launch. Why it's a big launch is it's because that's the biggest car category in America. You know, it's the same car category that the Camry and the Accord uh, are, are in. And so it's such a big category. I said, well, what are you going to try and accomplish? What is your aspiration? And what they told me was, well, last year we sold 60,000 uh, uh, Malibus at retail in our last model year. Uh, and uh, we hope to double that, right? And you'd say, right, doubling is not a bad aspiration on the, on the surface of it, right? That's a big increase to double. But you might ask the question, how many Camrys did Toyota sell in America in that year? Any guesses? 560,000. How about Honda Accord? 440,000. So the aspiration for this vehicle was to take it from being selling about a tenth as many as the leader in the, in the market to selling a f as fifths as many. Now, do you think this is going to end happily, that, that, that story? You're, you're a laggard, right? You don't have the scale that they, that they do. You won't have the presence. You won't have uh, people on the road seeing, uh, seeing lots of your vehicles. But that was the aspiration. So working together, I convinced them that's not a good, good enough aspiration. If you actually need to take on Toyota, that's not going to do it for you. And we set as the aspiration that we would build a car that when car and driver and road and track and consumer reports came out, they would say this car is as good or better than the uh, Camry. Now, that necessitated something, right? Figuring out whether it was or not. Uh, and so I asked them, well, how does it stack up against the Camry? How does our new Malibu stack up against the Camry, which had just come out with its new model a year before, so we could compare it with a nice new, new Camry? The answer was, guess what? Guess what the answer was? We don't know. Right? Now, again, I'm not saying that this means that they're bad managers. They weren't. I think they're very, very good managers, but they're focused on what? The last Malibu, and making this way better than the last Malibu, rather than better than the Camry. And so that wasn't their focus. So we went out and tested it, got independent testing of it, and came to the conclusion that we were behind the Camry. We measured all sorts of criteria, nine criteria. And so it would come out in car and driver and road and track and, be, and say, well, it's not a bad car, but not quite as good as a Camry. So what we did is we invested $300 million, worked the engineering teams 24-7, three teams, like back-to-back. -back. So we tripled up so that we could work constantly for seven months to overcome the nine things that made us worse uh, than the Camry. And sure enough, $300 million, seven months of work. We launched that vehicle, and Car and Driver and Road and Track and Consumer Reports all said, oh my god, 
for the first time in over a decade, GM has put out a car, not a truck, because they've always done well in trucks, a car that is actually better than the equivalent uh, Toyota. And it actually got to the point where before the gigantic crash uh, came in 2008, when the bottom fell out of the market, uh, it was approaching Camry in, in, uh, in monthly sales. So rather than one-tenth, it was selling at the Camry level. And actually, since the crash, since the, com you know, the comeback, there have been months where it's actually outsold the, the Camry. That's only possible if you set up front a winning aspiration. You've got to say, here's what I want to accomplish. Here's how I want to win. So that's question one in strategy. The next question you've got to ask is, if you're going to win, where? Where are you going to win? Right? Every playing field <laughs> you know, that you can possibly play on tends to be bigger than it's optimal to play on. You have to pick within that field where you want to play and be distinctive compared to, compared to your competitors. Right? With what set of customers, with what product, in what geography do you want to play and focus your resources, focus your might, focus your investment. And so an example here is a nice West Coast firm from, from uh, Northern California, Intuit. Anybody, anybody use Quicken? You know, the personal, uh, personal uh, uh, software? That's how, how uh, Intuit got, uh, got started. Scott Cook, Quicken, personal uh, financial, uh, uh, financial software to organize your personal uh, life. Impossible in my case, but anyway, there's lots of people out there use it. Um, and uh, a very successful product, made Scott Cook a billionaire, made Intuit an important uh, company, uh, but Intuit cares a lot about their customers, and they have call centers to take customer questions and complaints and the like, and they started getting increasing numbers of calls complaining about their Quicken software. And the complaints would come in and somebody would call the call center and say, well, I, you know, my, I just, I, you know, Quicken just doesn't do the job that, that I needed to do. Okay, what's your problem? It doesn't have an accounts receivable and an accounts payable package. And the person dutifully on the other, other end would say, well, it's uh, for people, not for businesses. Uh, you know, that's, it's not supposed to have one, right? And they, okay, goodbye customer. Then another customer would call, and another customer would call, and another customer would call. And eventually, what do you think Quicken did? did? Right? They said, well, even though we designed this for individuals, personal financial services, there seems to be a gap in the market or there's nobody that's serving the small business for their needs and they're taking our product that isn't even designed for them and trying to make it work for them. What would happen if we decided that our where to play would now include business software for small businesses? And what came out of that? You, yeah, QuickBooks, right? Probably pe people in this room uh, uh, use uh, use QuickBooks for their own uh, th for for their own uh, business. Which do you think is bigger, Quicken or QuickBooks? Now in the Intuit uh, uh, portfolio, QuickBooks by about six times. It's absolutely their dominant product, and. It's only their dominant product because they were willing to be conscious about where to play and change the where to play 
into one that turns out to be a, a, a more a more fruitful one, even though Quicken is fantastic. It's a fantastic product in, in its in its market space. But it, it, it demonstrates that where to play is always a choice. It's not foreordained by somebody because everybody else plays in these places. We should play in those places too. Often modifying your where to play is incredibly important. Then where you've chosen to play, so you've got an aspiration. We want to we be the best in small business software. How will we win? Right? How will we win where we've chosen to play? Now, lots of people think that's the only thing that strategy is about, kind of winning, but it's not. It's extremely hard to win if you haven't defined very carefully where you're going to play. And it's extremely unlikely if you're going to win if you haven't said, we actually do want to win and that's what we're going to stand for. And so here, if you ta take a great how to win, how, how are we going to win Starbucks, right? Starbucks says, you know, our aspiration right, is to create a third place for people kind of where they will love this place and love their coffee. We're going to play in a traditional space in coffee shops, but how we're going to win is creating this, this third place, a different experience, a place to have your coffee and experience your coffee in a different way than it is any, anywhere else. So you've got a unique place, unique way to win in a place that's a more generic where to play, but spurred by having that aspiration uh, for winning, aspiration for doing something different than your, your competitors. Then you've got to ask your, your, yourself the question, what capabilities do you have to have, right? It's all logically work. What capabilities do you have to have to win in the way you've chosen to win in the place that you've chosen to play so that you achieve your winning uh, aspirations. Because if you don't have the capabilities to deliver on that, you won't win. And sometimes that means building entirely new capabilities. You know, when Angela Ahrens took over Burberry, she altered the Burberry strategy to say, well, we want to win. We want to win with young luxury goods buyers. We're going to be the one that appeals to younger, younger shoppers around the world. And what does that mean? It means we've got to be more online than any luxury good manufacturer is to date, by far. And so we've got to build from scratch that capability. We've got to hire all sorts of young people who understand that, uh, that world. And we've got to do things like put our annual report, is, uh, our annual report, has anybody seen Burberry? you know, annual, annual reports, they're a video, right? Their official annual report is a video, uh, not, a, you know, not a, not a thick uh, deck and it's, just, and it's, uh, and it's thrown up uh, online. They also said, we're going to have to have capabilities to innovate for a younger uh, uh, audience. And that will mean creating an innovation capability that's built from the bottom, from across all of Burberry employees uh, at the bottom, not just the, not just the designers at, at the top. So in order to win where she chose to play, had to build a new set of capabilities. And then to make sure that those capabilities are built and maintained on an ongoing basis, you need to have management systems that ensure that they're there. 
And so the hotel company, the luxury hotel brand, that's the, the best luxury hotel brand in the world, what would you say? Four Seasons. First thing that comes to mind in everybody, Four Seasons, right? And there, Izzy Sharp, head of winning aspirations, we will have the best hotel in every market we're in. That's my aspiration. Where will we play? Only in those markets that can afford and support a five-star hotel. And we're only going to play in hotel management. We're not going to play in hotel ownership. How are we going to win? We're going to have better service than anybody else and a different kind of service than anybody else. Notice in when you go to Four Seasons, service is different than most luxury hotels. The standard in most luxury hotels is grand architecture and decor and very obsequious service. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Whatever you want, sir. What he observed is all that grand architecture and decor and obsequious service made you feel less like you were in the place you really wanted to be. And where do you think busy business travelers really want to be? At home. Exactly. They want to be at home, not traveling. And if you're actually traveling and you're in some place that has exceedingly grand architecture and decor and obsequious service, it makes you feel what? Less like you're at home. Four Seasons said, we want to make you feel more like you're at home. So you'll notice the service is very friendly. It helps you get things done, make things happen, and it is not obsequious. And the architecture, while beautiful, tends to be less grand. The rooms tend to be gorgeous, but not ornate. That makes you feel like you for sure are somewhere, uh, are, are somewhere else. And the service has to be impeccably, impeccably good because Four Seasons charges a huge price premium versus even their luxury comp uh, competitors. How do you do that? What is the management system necessary to make sure that your service is outstanding? Well, they have a system that's built around something called the glitch report. If anything ever goes wrong with any guest that's observed, a guest is upset about anything, their car took too long, uh, longer to bring back from valet, their bags took too long to get up to the, to the room, they couldn't get a reservation in the, in the hotel restaurant at the time they want, they're upset about anything at all, it has to be recorded as a glitch. And I love the name. There was a glitch. It goes in the glitch report, and every morning, the entire hotel staff from the manager on down meets to go over the glitch report and the service recovery plan for each glitch, right? And until such time as the service recovery plan is completely carried out, so that uh, wh whereby the guest is made to feel great and feels as, uh, almost usually at Four Seasons sort of secretly happy that the glitch happened, because they're going to get something wonderful to make them feel great, theater tickets, uh, tickets to the, to the, the, to the game, uh, whatever, whatever, free bottle of champagne, free dinner, whatever, until such that, that glitch report is open. And the glitch report has to be sent to Central, right, to corporate. Every, every uh, week's uh, uh, accumulative glitch report goes in. And what do you think happens to the hotel manager who manages to eliminate all glitches? What do you think happens? They're in big trouble. They're probably likely to get fired.
Why do you think that's the case? Eliminating glitches is not the, the goal. The only way to eliminate glitches is to lower the bar until glitches are not called glitches anymore. This is a truism actually in hospitals too. If you're picking hospitals, you should pick the hospital with the highest level of recorded medical error. No, it's true. There, there's, 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 uh, there's uh, uh, research that research that demo demonstrates that. Why? You just don't want to be in a hospital that does not record medical error, and that's what that's what you find. So the, when they measure outcomes, actual outcomes, it turns out that they are positively correlated with with incidents of recorded medical error. Why? It's because in those hospitals, right? They're getting ever better because they record and then do something about it. So Four Seasons wants glitches to be recorded and fixed, right? So that the standard of, of service gets better and better every time. Think about it. If you didn't have that system and you just said, we want to have great service, do you think you'd have, do you think you'd be building the capabilities on an ongoing basis to bring in 400 uh, guests a night or two, 200 guests a night and give them that kind of service? Probably not. That's why it's one of the five, even though it might seem simple, it's one of the, one of the five things that are the choices you have to make to have a strategy. And just to give one more, uh, one last example, and then we'll talk about anything you want to talk about, this product. So this is one of the, th one of the things that AG worked on, and uh, AG Lafley and I worked on uh, uh, from the earliest time that, uh, in, in fact, slightly even before he, he became CEO when he was head of the worldwide beauty business. Olay was then called Oil of Olay. It was a tired old brand, sold little pink bottles. You remember those little pink bottles? Three ninety nine price point in the mass channels was a flat, uh, flat in sales, about seven hundred and fifty million worldwide. So not a terrible, you know, not a tiny little business, but flat. And the scariest thing about it was that if you measured the average age of an Olay user in a given year, and then you said, "What's the average age of our Olay users the next year?" It was just about one year older on average, <laughs> which meant they were getting no new customers, and their older customers were getting, or their their existing customers were getting one foot closer to the grave. <laughs> so this wasn't so, this wasn't so good. And the other problem was that that the uh, PNG had an aspiration for the beauty category to become the world's most important, biggest, and best beauty company. They trailed dramatically at that, that at that point. They had some pieces of a beauty business, shampoos. They did w well in shampoos. They had a little business in fine fragrances and color cosmetics. But it turns out that the biggest business in the beauty sector is skincare. $50 billion business worldwide. And Olay was nowhere near the biggest uh, player and, and certainly not, not the best uh, player in that industry. So they set as their aspiration, right back to here, they set as their aspiration, we want to have one of the most important uh, skincare brands in the world to anchor what will be the best beauty business in the world. And so they then had to ask questions again about this, the, this product, where will we play? And they looked at that market and said, everybody currently plays 
in the the uh, wrinkle reduction, wrinkle treatment category uh, seg segment for women 50 and older. Right? And they were duking it out in that, in the mass channel. Lots of players were play playing in, in the prestige channels, in the department store channels, and Nordstrom, Macy's, etc., going to the uh, beauty counters there. Um, and they did a bunch of understanding of the consumer and came to the conclusion that there's another segment that's underserved, that's women 35 to 50, who are not necessarily fighting wrinkles, who are observing their skin aging, and there are seven signs of that that they, they determine, spots, tightness, uh, dryness, they're, and they're starting to be concerned about that and would love to have a product for them, but there's nobody actually aiming for them, addressing uh, them. So they changed the where to play from 50 plus demographic to 35 to 50. Right? How we'll win, right? How are we going to win in that, uh, against that uh, demographic? One, we've got a better product. So we're going to have to invest more in the better active ingredient for not just wrinkles, but these seven signs of aging. Uh, how are we, uh, how else are we going to win? We're going to stay in our channels that we know well. So Procter & Gamble is a huge player in the mass channels. So for Target and Walmart and Ralph's and, uh, and Walgreens, they're a huge supplier. Uh, they don't play in the prestige channel, hardly at all. They have only a minuscule presence. So we're going to stay in the mass channel, but we're going to create a prestige-like experience in the mass channel by working with our retailers who trust us and are willing to work with us. We'll create shelving, display, packaging that looks prestige-like, but in the mass channel because that shopper goes to the mass channel on an, o on an ongoing basis regularly for all their daily, daily or weekly needs. They only go to the department store when they have to. And what we also discovered is that the one thing they don't like about the department stores, and we can check with the women in, in here, the department stores is there is a very pushy woman, often almost all women, pushy woman salespeople, pushy woman uh, behind the counter trying to sell them too much stuff. And the reason is that person actually works for for Clarins or works for uh, Estee Lauder, not the department store, and they're on commission and they're trying to push their product. So they like the fact that there's a whole product line there, it's wonderfully packaged, it's higher quality stuff, but they wish they weren't pushed around uh, when they go and they could buy kind of what they want. So we're going to create a prestige-like experience, which we came to call Mastige experience, with a product that has great active ingredients targeted at the seven signs of, uh, of aging, uh, etc. And we're going to, we're going to notice what this is now called, Olay. We're going to drop the oil of while, while we're at it, uh, because that doesn't uh, go over so hot anymore. What capabilities do we have to, uh, to have to do this? This was hard work for us. We had to build all sorts of capabilities to work with the retailers to create a, this pr uh, mastige type uh, type uh, experience in in store. We also had to build capabilities of working with the beauty editors of the major magazines to get them writing articles about our pro our product. We had never done that before, and we had to build the capabilities uh, for that. And we had to build the capabilities uh, uh, for celebrity uh, uh, in endorsers, third-party endorsers. All of those were new capabilities that were necessary to win, how we'd chosen to win, where we'd chosen uh, to, uh, to play. And last, we needed 
different management systems. We needed to build some management systems we had uh, didn't have. We did not have uh, uh, management systems that helped us spend the kind of money we needed with the, with the retailers to create this mass teach experience. You know, we had all sorts of rules about what we could uh, could spend per case of any good we we produced. This required this required different systems for doing it, and required systems to be built for for dealing with the influencers in in that uh, industry. Again, if we didn't build those systems, we wouldn't have those capabilities that would enable us to uh, to win. The good news behind this is that we launched. If you can believe it, the first product we launched was Olay Total Effects. We launched it at an 1899 price point instead of the 399 price point we were used to, which is a bold move. It sold like hotcakes, and we followed that up with Definity, Regenerous, and this Olay Pro X at the $50 price point. So we went we went against the lower end of the prestige price point increasingly up to the middle end of it and now have the world's biggest skincare brand two and a half billion dollar brand growing at 10 10 percent plus a year for more than a, a, a decade and is the anchor of now what is arguably the world's most important uh, beauty business so that that is a simple example of for one product how you can Answer those five questions, answer them together in a way that links together. And again, the only hard thing about strategy, there's only one hard thing about strategy. We want to make strategy simple, fun, and effective. There is one hard thing, and that is that these five questions have to link with one another, fit with one another, and reinforce one another. That's why strategy is not a linear process. That's why you see arrows going both directions, which is if you have a winning aspiration and there's nowhere to play or how to win that can get you there, you have to do what? Revisit that winning aspiration, right? If you have an idea of how you want to win, but you can't build the capabilities for that, you've got to revisit that how to win. So it's a constant iterating around to make sure that these five things fit together and reinforce one another so that you, so that you have a strategy that will work and, uh, and guide you. But that actually in my in my view is the only thing that makes strategy particularly challenging it doesn't give itself easily to the to a linear approach it also is is why it's a really dumb idea to lock yourself in a room uh for days on end to wordsmith a vision statement uh you've all done that right yeah um uh because whatever you wordsmith down to the final word could be totally irrelevant if there isn't actually a word to play how to win capabilities and management systems that brings that to, that, that to life. So I don't mind going into a room, go into a room for an hour, imagine a winning aspiration, then ask yourself the questions, the, the other four questions, revisit, revisit, uh, and, and iterate, and you will have yourself a great strategy. So with that, um, I would say thank you to you, and I'm happy to answer any questions about this or all my other work, uh, since we're in a wonderful uh, art and design college. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions about my previous stuff on uh, design. So thank you very much.
I think, and, and as I've as I've uh, I've written about, I mean, and I, and I believe about about strategy. Strategy strategy is is in the end a creative act, right? And you know, so there so there are these questions to ask, but but it's a it's a creative act and an act of imagination. Like who could imagine saying the th product that that uh, consumers are used to paying three ninety nine for, we can charge eighteen ninety nine for. That that requires some imagination. What I think that uh, is so important about design education and why I'm trying to infuse as much of design education into business education at, at our school as possible is you get trained to imagine what does not now exist but could be great. So from for for my view, I think designers of all stripes, graphic or in, in industrial or transportation, whatever, uh, uh, d designers should aspire to helping more analytically oriented linear folks uh, imagine what does not now exist rather than analyze what does exist. Analyzing what does exist is not a bad idea, but you can only take it so far. If you simply analyzed what existed and you were A.G. Laffley uh, and, and the team uh, for Olay, they would have said, well, what exists now are prestige brands and they're sold this way in this department, uh, in this uh, uh, channel at this price. And there are mass brands and they're sold at this uh, in this channel in this way at this price point. And they would have optimized one, one, of, those t uh, one of those two. You would have never gotten, uh, gotten Olay. So I think uh, so. I think the aspiration should be should be to bring to bear some w some constructive and organized ways of imagining things that could be right by understanding users uh, super well, but also just um, you know imagining on the basis of that uh, kind of what could be, um, and that's why I mean I think this is. You know this era where there's more need for innovation than there ever has been, where you cannot make gigabucks by by optimizing what exists now. Uh, the role of the designer is more important than it's ever been, and I think more open than it's ever been. I would say it's super important for designers to understand strategy and understand how business works and how companies get advantage. Because otherwise, it will dismiss, be dismissed as saying, as being, well, that's that sounds like a great idea, but how does that fit with our business? How does that make us a buck? And so, I think that's to, in order to fulfill that role of helping invent the future, uh, they need to understand a little bit about business. One is you can never take into account 100%. So this is one of the things we say about strategy. Strategy is not about perfection, it's about shortening your odds. We would argue that if you think very carefully about these five questions, you will have a better chance of having success, but you won't succeed for sure. One of the other things we talk about in the book, though, is reverse engineering, saying once you've come up with your strategy, ask yourself the question, what would have to be true for this to be successful? You know, 
this is how things would have to roll out in the economy, this is what competitors would have to do, etc. Make that list of the things that would be important, things that would have to be true for this to work. That way you can watch for things that don't fit with those things that would have to be true and be able to be alert to them sooner rather than later. And what I would say is sometimes, right, you know, well, you know, sometimes uh, the proverbial tsunami comes and you don't, you don't have any warning and blammo, it wipes you out. More often than not, in my experience, the, the, uh, the things that kill companies, you can see coming for a long, long time, but they don't notice them because they haven't laid out the logic of their strategy and what it depends on clearly enough. So I would say you should expect that your strategy could be disrupted at any time. Ask yourself what would have to be true for the strategy to work and then watch for and then adjust to. Go back to the five questions and say, wow, uh, there's this new product that's, that, that's come out that's different than we anticipated. What does that say about our where to play and how to win? Or boy, the economy's gone, gone in, into the tank. What does that mean for how consumers are behaving now? What does that mean for our five questions? So. Uh, you have to be alert forever. I mean, this is where Andy Grove is right. Only the paranoid survive. I say only those people who are alert to the things that could go wrong in their strategy and are watching for them will actually come out ahead. I've written uh, with AG a book that kind of simplifies the guts of strategy in a way that, that I think any designer could read uh, and that would give them a big leg up. So, I, I mean, it, it, uh, although this is obviously selling my own book, but, but, but in, sp in part the design of this book was to say for somebody who might not be a business person, who might not have read anything about strategy before, here is a, here's a simple way of thinking about, uh, about strategy. That I think is, a, so, so in terms of education, I'd say, I'd say learning and absorbing something, something like this would be, would be impo uh, important. But I think after that, the most important thing to, to, to do is to just listen and learn uh, uh, from, uh, from with, with business people. Like, and and what, I, what I'd hope this would be able to do is overcome the one thing that causes people to not listen and learn. Like I think one of the things that causes people to just bail out of the idea of listening and learning is language systems. When they simply can't understand the language, they don't understand, you're talking accounts receivable, I don't know what that means, uh, or, or, you know, then, then they'll butt out of the conversation and just say, I can't play this game. It is as if they're proverbially speaking Greek. Um, and, uh, and so learning a little bit of the language system will help you hang in there in conversations, even if you don't really know exactly precisely why they're talking about what they're talking about. I think, all, I think it's all kind of learnable by asking questions and, and staying in, in, uh, in the dialogue. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I do think my advice to any designer would be kind of read some business books, uh, to, to pick up uh, to pick up the lingo, or just go to your local local community college or or or, or college and just take a take a uh, an introductory business course in part to learn the lingo so that you can hang into conversations because the rest of it is pretty is uh, I mean is pretty uh, uh, straightforward. Um, I w I would love to see more design MBA co combined programs for the people who want to be more more business p 
people. Like I think many designers want to be designers who understand business and are business-like designers, but they don't want to be a business person. Uh, but I think these uh, these joint programs between design schools and MBAs, MBA schools are very good uh, for the for the people who want to be a business person who's infused with a disproportionate amount of design knowledge relative to your average business person. A couple of things. One, one thing that I, again, and I'm a business educator, so I am, am sort of more blissfully ignorant about exactly precisely what's taught in design schools than, than I probably should be. So this may be taught already. The sense that I get is it's not. Uh, but what I wrote about in the design of business, I would rather see uh, be, be taught in a much more explicit way to design students. I think it's taught implicitly. And by that, I mean abductive logic. I don't think they're told it's abductive logic. I don't think they're told what inductive and deductive logic is, how it's used to make inferences in, in the world, and what different kind of inference uh, uh, inferences abductive logic uh, produces. And so when they go out into the world that is dominantly, increasingly dominantly, and I'm worried I'm really kind of sick about this, actually, with this, and, and, and I love John Maida. Don't, don't you love John Maida? STEAM rather than STEM, like he's attacking STEM. I hate STEM. There's this, this whole obsession in North America now with the only thing that's going to keep us ahead of the, the, the dreaded Indians and Chinese is, is STEM. I mean, give me a break uh, is, is, is my reaction. So, so, but... In a world that's increasingly STEM-oriented, which is increasingly about the application of inductive and deductive logic to solve every problem on the face of the planet, even the ones that are, uh, can, you know, should never be even addressed with those forms of logic, the designers go out there and sort of say, well, this is kind of how I think, and, and have much less credibility than they would otherwise have because they don't understand the the logical rigor of what they're doing and the f and and the historical context in which that's been that's been under understood. So I would I would rather uh, you know have a little bit of history of philosophy taught to uh, to uh, uh, designers uh, to be honest a little history of science history of philosophy uh, as a, as as a way to make designers uh, more confident of the incredible importance of the way they think and to help them understand that they are being as rigorous as these STEM people, even though the STEM people are the only important people in the world from what I can tell now. <laughs> you got me on something. So that's what I, that's. <laughs> so that's what I, that, that, uh, those, that would be an important uh, uh, component. And I know my, you know, Patrick Whitney, who, who's a, uh, who uh, runs the Institute of Design at IIT. Um, I, I know that's that's something that he worries about is that is that design education is too implicit. That you do ask you ask uh, design students to ply their craft, uh, but don't ask them enough to reflect on. What exactly did I do there? How did I think? What was my thinking process that got me there? It's not that it doesn't done at all, but he would say it's done uh, done less than it it uh, it should be. And so then they go out into the world and cannot explain 
why what they're doing makes sense other than to say, but it looks great or it works great or so, and they can do better in, in, in conversing with the dominant species now in the, in the, in the world, which is the stemmer. On this on this front, I, I'm I'm sort of a I guess I'm sort of a realist pragmatist type, which is just to say, it is what it is, right? Sometimes you'll be in, uh, swimming in all sorts of data, and you're in that context. Then you should use all that data as uh, you know to the greatest extent possible, and actually be hard on yourself about being really rigorous and using all the data. And sometimes there's going to be very little. There's never going to be none. And what I what I just say is continue to be rigorous about it, even though the data isn't as isn't as as good as it might be. So if there are a thousand other little uh, little companies and you don't really know how big the industry is, make an assumption. Say here's my logic, and it's based on I think this is about how big the industry is, and I think this is about how big we are versus the biggest player in the industry. I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, right, here's what I'd have to do differently as in when I figure out that I'm wrong. Uh, and what that'll enable you to do is watch as the data becomes available. Because in most industries, right, as they mature, more data becomes available. And you'll know what to watch for. And if it starts to show patterns, you'd say, ah, because of the logic of my strategy, I was counting on the, the, the industry heading in this direction. It's not. I get, I, I, I've got to revisit that now and change and adjust. And I really think this whole revisiting s before other people do is is one of the most important competitive advantages, right? And one of my my great betonoirs, not my 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 uh, uh, beloved editor and colleague here, Jennifer Rial, she, she says I'm too hard on this kind of this uh, strain of th it's my emergent strategy thing, right? And that, which I am. So she can explain to you later why I'm why I'm being unreasonable. But there's there's this there's this there's this whole school of thought in strategy. That says that that says strategy is emergent, and it was very very intelligent. Uh, an intelligent Canadian, the best uh, business scholar of all time in Canada, is a guy named Henry Mintzberg, who said, "You know what? Uh, lots of people say their strategy is all done up in advance, and then you do it for ten years, and and everything works out according to plan. No, it doesn't. The world changes, and strategy is often emergent. It changes as things as things happen. That was really intelligent insight." Unfortunately, vast, vast, vast numbers of business people took that to mean, oh, I don't have to think about strategy. I'll just like do whatever strikes me when it when it when it happens, and that and then I'll call it this fancy name, emergent strategy. And Henry Mintzberg said it's okay, so I'll do that. Henry Mintzberg did not say it's okay. Henry Mintzberg would hate that. See, I'm that's fair. Okay, <laughs> see, I have to check with Jennifer, uh, and. Uh, but it, 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 it goes to my general point, which is it's always better, right? It's just so superior for you to lay out the logic of what you're doing, even if the logic isn't based on, on data because there isn't much data. You see, people conflate two things, logic and data. They're different, right? Logic is the cause and effect structures that you believe to be, the to, to, to be present, and data is what either demonstrates the effect structures are present or not. You can still posit cause and effect relationships without having much data.
but it's so much better for you if you do. But most people feel shameful for positing cause and effect relationships without data. Even where your good point is a good one. Sometimes there just isn't any, right? But if you posit the cause and effect relationship, you have the best chance, right, when data actually becomes available to figure out whether your cause and effect, the, thing, the cause and effect relationship you posited is more right than wrong before the people who just sort of say, hey man, I'm just going to figure out things as they go, I'm not really thinking. Um, so, so I would say, long-winded answer, but the short an answer is, do the thinking with uh, even though you don't have data so that you can know to watch for the data as it emerges because that's the way life works the data emerges uh, over time and you'll be first not last i think it takes it's going to take something from both sides so i think the people inhabiting the stem world I, I'm sorry, it's a good point, STEM, it's, uh, you know, I'm obsessed enough about it that it, it just, it's science, technology, engineering, and math, and there's an entire gigantic school of thought in education that says everything else is rubbish, and we should, and we should just teach everybody STEM, and the reason that America isn't doing as well as it used to be is that we're being beaten on STEM education, and there are fewer engineers and scientists being educated every year than ever before, and they, these are stated as if they're facts. They're actually all f completely false, uh, but they're stated as facts even by, uh, even by people like presidents, uh, not the current one, but uh, many. Um <laughs> the, uh, so, so that's STEM, and so, and, so, uh, uh, and so part of the problem is that there is a real belief in that community that that is all that matters and all you designers don't matter at all and we don't need you we just need more scientists and if we had more scientists engineers mathematicians everything would be fine and we could solve all all problems right so the so i think i think you need people like ag laffley who felt who felt that that there were certain aspects of, a, uh, of the Procter & Gamble that he inherited as CEO that uh, undervalued design and, and, and innovation and overvalued uh, kind of analysis, deductive and inductive logic, and he tilted the balance. And one of the reasons I think Procter's, you know, has done, uh, did so well under him is just a balance tilting. So one has to do with, with, uh, with, with the, f the STEM forces actually coming up against the limitations of the way of, of, uh, of thinking. They don't think it's limited. Uh, they imagine that you can, you, that uh, new ideas actually come from uh, inductive and deductive logic, even though uh, Charles Sanders Peirce said no, and I think he's right, no new idea in the history of the world has arisen out of deductive and inductive uh, logic. On the other side, I think the people in, in, inhabiting the abductive logical world have to knock it off with their unwillingness to reveal their thinking patterns. Right? To too great an extent, the people in that world just say, oh, this is my gut or my heart. You know, I just felt that. Not good enough. It doesn't actually work that way. All thought and action is designed. Designers should know that. 
Um, and I think designers have to be much more willing to share the fundamental abductive logic that they've used to make the leaps that get them to the answers that they produce. So I think, I think in my view, designers are far too defensive about how they got the answer. And in their defensiveness, they give all sorts of ammo to the STEM people to be dismissive. And that's why I would teach, I would teach a, a kind of a, a, a philosophy, history of science type course to design students to explain to them, this is how you think. This is what inductive logic is. This is what deductive logic is. This is what abductive logic is. This is exactly how abductive logic works. You should feel very comfortable making logical leaps of the mind. You should be uh, very comfortable taking little scraps and bits of data that don't actually fit together entirely and aren't utterly consistent and making a logical leap and explaining why you did that. Uh, and it actually takes practice to explain why you did what you did. Um, and if you don't, if you just say, yeah, I just thought it was a great idea, I thought it would be look great, <laughs> the STEM people will, will have uh, all the ammo they need to say, we should just close all those schools down and turn them into engineering schools. I think it is a challenge, and, uh, but I, th I think, again, I, I do think that the best teacher on this, on this front is failure. Uh, right, and and I think General Motors would be a would be a good a good uh, case in point. Right, it had to bang its head against the wall, c like cost reducing, cost reducing, you know, uh, uh, making the interiors of their car look just just dreadful that you never want to even be in one of them, uh, th and and have the consumers say, well, I just won't buy it unless you put a ten thousand dollar off sticker on the on the windshield after it sits on the lot for nine months. Then they said, "Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll get you know Bob Lutz to come uh, come back, and and then he runs wild in the in the place and starts actually, you know, designing cars with lots of other people, Wayne Cherry and and, and lots of other. It wasn't just Bob Lutz designing cars that people sort of say, I can get excited about that that car.' So I think I think there's going to have to be, you know." You know, abject failure is uh, 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 to be a driver of saying maybe there's something we're we're uh, uh, we're missing out on. So I think that's uh, frankly, I think even that's a big behemoth. If you look at the cars now, those are those are those are much better designed cars in interior uh, uh, as as well as uh, as well as uh, ex exterior. But you are right. I mean, it is. It, it does take somebody relatively senior, like an A.G. Laffley, saying, "We are going to bring. I'm going to hire. I'm going to appoint a, uh, Claudia Kochka, the first ever vice president of design for Procter and Gamble, and I'm going to give her budget, and I'm going to give her uh, space. And I'm going to say, make us more uh, design like. Go racing off to IDEO and hire them, and Continuum and Zeba and blah blah blah, all sorts of uh, 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 firms. Um, and and it's harder if there's nobody in the in the company that uh, that uh, in the higher echelons that uh, uh, that cares. That all having been said, right? The best friend of design, you know, in many respects, is Steve Jobs, Johnny Ives, and uh, you know Apple, because everybody's got Apple envy, and they have Herman Miller envy too. I want an Aeron chair uh, as well, and so 
I'm I'm more optimistic than pessimistic, right? Which is which is I, I think there are enough examples, and the corporate world if, is if, is nothing but nothing but bloody minded. I mean, it, it's if it sees something that works, it'll do it if it even if it doesn't believe in it, right? I mean, seriously, like if if everybody else is doing six sigma, you may say I'm not sure about six sigma, but everybody else is doing it, so I'll at least give it a try. Um, and that's and, and sort of copycatting is de rigueur in the world of, of corporations, and I think there's a bunch of that uh, going to happen on design. So I'd be encouraged about uh, about design, but I'd be more encouraged to the extent that designers are willing to be explicit about what they're doing rather than Im implicit. For me, the ball gets rolling in a very kind of general way. It's sort of, I mean, if, so for in the, in, if we want to just use the GM, my conversations with them in the fall of 2006, it was just, well, we've got this big launch coming up. You guys are all excited about the, about the new Malibu. You know, what would make you feel great about that Malibu? What, what, what would your greatest aspiration uh, uh, be? And, and we talked about it. And, and, and when they put the, the double the sales, I was like, okay, I mean, here's another interpretation. Here's what I believe your relationship is with Toyota. I believe over the last 20 years, the relationship has gone something like the following. Toyota walks up to you and punches you in the nose, and you take three steps back, and then you just chill out for a while, and then they walk up to you and punch you in the nose, and you take another three steps back, then you wait, and then this, this repeats. Wouldn't it be interesting if we actually turned around and bloodied their nose? <coughs> Would that be fun? <laughs> and that's actually what it became. It, 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 it became the bloody their nose uh, a vehicle, right? We need to bloody their nose. We need, we, because what I said is when they open another plant in America to build more Camrays, that plant's going to be around here for a long time. We want them to not build any more Camry plants in North America because Camry sales are going down, not up. We must bloody their nose. And so it's just that kind of conversation where, where in general I think of when, when I'm part of those conversations is my, my, job, is, my job is to encourage, encourage them to set an aspiration that, that actually is highly motivational, that feels like something that you'd all want to get behind and, and be willing to fight for. Yeah, it might be. I hadn't thought of it. Yeah, yeah. Probably when you've been beaten up for long enough, maybe saying, you know, hey, we can't take on the Camry. You know, everybody thinks the Camry. You know, Toyota and Camry walks on water, and da 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 da. da and so that's uh, more comfortable. Like everybody wants to succeed, right? Nobody likes to fail. Everybody likes to succeed. What's a way you can guarantee success? Right. Put the bar low enough. You know, we can have a high jump contest where the bar is this high, and we can all succeed. Uh, uh, and uh, maybe um, um, so. So that's probably is that that it. It probably is something. The worry about failing that would uh, would d discourage people from from setting a winning aspiration that is in, uh, that is in truth uh, kind of aspirational in a motivational way. That's a good point. Hadn't thought of it before. Well, I guess I, 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 I wrote a book called Design Thinking the uh, Why Design Thinking is the Next Competitive or Design a Business Why Design Thinking is the Next Competitive Advantage. Um, so I, I do believe that that in strategy you cannot get your way to a beautiful strategy like this 
on the basis of inductive and deductive logic alone. And for me, my own definition of design thinking is, is the use of abductive logic to advance knowledge from mystery to heuristic to algorithm. Uh, and, and so I guess I believe more, if anything, more so than I, than I believe when in 19, uh, 2009 when I, when I uh, uh, wrote, that, wrote that book, also edited by uh, Jennifer. Um, uh, I believe more now than I believed then that, that you know, the companies that can harness abductive logic, and I'm, I'm, I'm very careful, harness, right? You know, if you're a corporation and you're big, like a Procter & Gamble or, or, or these companies we've talked about, you've got to figure out how to harness and organize it to a certain extent. This gets back to reliability versus validity, which I write a lot about in, in, in the book. Right? The forces of reliability are the forces that are, that are attempting to create a consistent replicable outcome. The forces of validity are the forces that are oriented to try and creating an outcome that you'd love and really want to have. And any big organization that has to meet payroll every quarter and stay in existence uh, has to balance those two uh, uh, needs, reliability and, uh, and validity. Uh, but to get validity, you need abductive logic. And that, to me, is the, is the heart of design thinking. And that, that need will become ever and ever more, more clear as competitive cycles slow and competition competition in any industry intensi intensifies, then the winners are going to win uh, with being able to apply and harness abductive logic. Thank you, so much. you are most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for all your good questions. Thank you.